You're listening to a podcast by the BCG Henderson Institute, BCG's Think Tank. In this series, hosted by fellow Dave Young, we'll interview business leaders and explore how companies can build competitive advantage by creating a sustainable world. Now on to our episode. Welcome to another episode of Building Competitive Advantage in a Sustainable World. And today, I am excited to welcome Nilly Gilbert to discuss how investors and philanthropists are taking action to accelerate climate action and pushing investments toward greater sustainability. Nilly is a BCG senior advisor and also serves as the vice chairwoman of Carbon Direct. She's chair of the investment committee for the David Rockefeller Fund. She's chair of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero Advisory Panel and chair for US policy for the UN Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance. And coming out of COP, we've seen this incredible momentum from capital providers to escalate the climate agenda, including the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So it is very clear the smart money has a keen sense of urgency of the moment. I'm pleased and eager to have the opportunity to talk with Nelly about the role of investors in philanthropic capital and how that can come to play in accelerating this path to a more sustainable future. So welcome, Nelly, and we're thrilled to have the chance to speak with you. But maybe to begin, can you please introduce yourself a bit and tell us about your career and experience with this whole journey to sustainability? Hi, Dave. It's great to be here. And thanks so much for having me as a guest on the podcast. My career in sustainability actually didn't start in finance. When I graduated college back in 1999, I was a young dreamer who wanted to be a part of changing the world. And I joined the nonprofit sector at a Rockefeller family organization called Synergos, which focuses on international development. And it was there that I started noticing and thinking a lot about how much the changes that we wanted to make in the world depended on financial capital and decisions that were make it being made by people in control of capital. Mm, yes. And that was what made me first become excited about going into the finance sector myself. I remember I was walking my dog one day And I had a eureka moment where I said, there's some people who have an outside voice in making the decisions that affect our mission and work in the world. And I want to become one of those people. So that was how I got into sustainable finance. I went back to Columbia Business School. I studied everything that I could about how we put prices on things as a society. And I came into the finance sector as a hedge fund manager. From there, I got asked back to join that same Rockefeller family board and to chair the investment committee. And this was where around 2006, we first expressed our commitments to mission-aligned investing across our board-restricted fund. And those were the early days for sustainable finance. And it's been a long road and journey ever since then. We're seeing this real movement, this real collective action, particularly around climate. And so talk a little bit about how organizations like the UN Convened Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance are reshaping the investment ecosystem. How should individual asset managers or owners think about creating 
advantage while they're participating in alliances like this? So in terms of how organizations like the Asset Owners Alliance are reshaping the investment ecosystem, a lot of this starts with fiduciary duty and a sense of wanting to maximize the long-term risk-adjusted returns for our beneficiaries, for our missions. The Swiss Re Institute estimates up to 20% hit, permanent hit to global GDP if we stay on the same trajectory that we're on right now with climate change. And so, for example, in my role as chair of the David Rockefeller Funds Investment Committee, which is how I come into the Asset Owners Alliance, when I think about the most significant risks that we face over the long term to our investment goals, this is it. Yeah. And so we want to reshape not just the investment ecosystem, but to use the arm of financial capital to reshape the global economy itself to be able to stave off those worst effects. And as I said, in that sense, to align our actions with the fiduciary duty that we all hold. And so when it comes to how then individual asset managers and asset owners are thinking about creating competitive advantage in the way that they're participating in these alliances for collective action, it's a really interesting question. Sometimes when you talk with an institution, and I have the benefit not only through the Asset Owners Alliance, but also as a senior advisor at BCG to talk with a lot of institutions that are trying to think about their own unique approach to these commitments. At first, leaders may be concerned that they're backing themselves into a very tightly defined corner. I mean, we all do adhere to specific standards and practices, but the truth is that there's a lot of opportunity for uniqueness and the expression of your own institution's unique beliefs values, skill sets in how you set your own pledges and targets. And I think that that's a lot of the art in it. Different institutions' options will be determined by their starting portfolios, the business that they're doing now, as I said, by the beliefs that their team may have about how climate change will unfold and how the economy will react to it. It will be shaped by the skill sets that they have in place, where they think that they uniquely can move the needle the most. And then also technical things like the country and therefore regulatory environment that they're operating in. And in some cases, the willingness of their client base to move. And so when it comes to competitive advantage, there is not just the opportunity, but the necessity to be unique and to customize your own organization's approach to how you'll target net zero. And this is what creates different kinds of competitive advantage that I think are very helpful for the market, because then we have different players operating in different parts of the space, which all will be needed at the end of the day for us to achieve our collective goals. Yeah, I think that's a terrific observation. This notion of capital, both sort of shaping and differentiating and competing 
in order to really have the broadest influence across the widest number of industry sectors in this transformation. In my mind, 2020-2021 has been this major inflection point in this whole sustainability move as we saw so many companies making much bolder commitments to climate action and sustainability. You know, many announcing that zero commitments before the COP, and I'm sure we'll see many others afterwards with a lot more specificity than they have in the past and an embrace of SBTI in setting those net zero commitments. As the dust settles now from COP26, what do you think investors will be expecting to see in the next few quarters to demonstrate that these commitments are credible? Sort of what needs to be in place to ensure accountability for these commitments? So it's interesting to think about the specific steps that a company takes as it makes its net zero pledge and then moves into action. The wonderful news, as you say, is that in the lead up to COP26, many different institutions made net zero pledges. I heard someone call COP26 the commitment COP. So people are stepping up and making commitments. And remarkably, if you look at the race to zero run by the UN climate champions, this is the body that oversees pledges and commitments from non-state actors. So everything except for the government pledges. Right. They now have over 10,000 institutions worldwide that have made pledges and commitments. So the next step from making a pledge is to communicate a formal target. So this is the part where we get more specific about each company's or each institution's own goals and approaches, how they, back to this conversation we were having about competitive advantage, how they will uniquely target the pledges that we all share. And so what we should be looking for is for those companies who have just recently made pledges, that they should make their targets public. And these targets should not be for 2050. I mean, we all have a net zero by 2050 goal, but the gold standard is to have high quality interim targets focused on five or 10 year time horizons. Within the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, we're committed to publicly announcing our accomplishments against those interim targets on an annual basis. And so then once you get into the targets, you do your measurements, you are transparent with where you are and how it's going, I think the next step is, of course, taking action. Demonstrated leadership on the ground that is leading to decarbonization in the real world. And that really is the only way, not only that we can successfully achieve our targets over time, but it's also the only way that we're going to achieve net zero in the economy and limit global warming to one and a half degrees. Nelly, I'm wondering if we could go deeper again on this point of this transparency on activities that I'm doing as a company right now, I can imagine that for many C-suite teams, the goals, the ambition, the announcement of targets are things that they may not be in those same roles 
by the time the company achieves. The target horizons are well beyond the tenures of many CEOs. And so there's a concern that I've heard expressed about potential greenwashing of these things, right? Basically, I am on the journey because it doesn't really have to be my journey. And so some concern about that. But it sounds like what you're saying that investors are going to really begin pulling back the plans or the targets and looking deeply at the actions instead as validation and assurance that the company is really on the journey. Is that the way we avoid and get over maybe some of the skepticism out there around whether or not real change is going to come from all of this? Yes, it you know so so one of the ways is to focus on real world impact as you're saying demonstrated action which we can also translate into long-term projects and commitments. And also this 10-year question is one of the many reasons to prefer shorter term interim targets. I can use myself as an example for the net zero pledge that we've made for the David Rockefeller Fund. We have a five-year interim target that we've committed to. And as the chair of the investment committee, I feel like I can really take responsibility for the next five years. Part of that responsibility is helping to put in place the conditions for the more ambitious goals that we'll need to achieve in the five years that will follow this five years. And so I also feel kind of like I'm working on a five-year target and a 10-year target in a sense. But then when you talk about the 10-year challenge, I think about the role across sectors, not just the private sector, but the public sector and civil society have to play in achieving all of these and how we hold each other to account so that it's not just from an individual leader to an individual leader, but institutions working with institutions over time on achieving their goals. I think that's an extremely important point. I mean, we've often said that these kinds of system level solutions can only occur with the intersection of the public, private, social sector and capital going into those models where the three are working together in to take on the decarbonization challenge within a particular industry or sector. And so I think for investors, another question that would be interested in exploring is it strikes me that this could be an incredible opportunity for financial innovation to think about ways the capital can come into these challenges differently than it ever has in the past. Do you see innovation as being something that we should expect to see more of in the financial sector and in the investment sector? Yes, for, well, some of it is innovation and also some of it is leaning into and improving on things that we already know how to do. You know, one example is blended finance, where we bring together private sector capital with capital that could come from the public sector or the philanthropic sector to de-risk the private investment. And this is something that we've known how to do for a long time, but it's not something that is being done at the scale or with the depth that will be needed to achieve the climate transition, especially across the global South. 
And so we put forward a position paper on scaling blended finance from the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance that talks about it's not innovation in terms of structures. It's different types of cultural innovations, innovations in the way that the sectors work together, innovations in the way that the capital comes to the table. And then even outside of the finance sector, I'm excited that you asked about innovation because it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. I spend a lot of time looking at all our, all our potential pathways to net zero and they're hard. You know, we're going to have to work really hard to achieve this. And so sometimes as I think about how are we going to actually do this, starting at the end and working backward, I feel most excited about those innovations that can push us onto completely new pathways, where all of a sudden new horizons and options are open to us that just make our goals a lot easier to achieve. And that's one of the reasons that I was so passionate to step into the role of vice chairwoman of Carbon Direct, where through Carbon Direct Capital Management, we're making the venture capital growth equity investments in those technological solutions that will be required to help us achieve our goals and improve those pathways. And so it's not just the innovation of how financing structures work but using financial capital to drive innovation itself in a way that helps us to achieve our shared climate goals. Sometimes when we talk about innovation and technology, you know, our minds immediately go to all the kind of the hard things, the hardware, right, of doing this. But in the past, UNGA and climate, we saw the largest commitments of philanthropic capital towards nature. And so what do you see as kind of the frontier role that philanthropic capital can be playing in other sort of underinvested areas of sustainability and equity, everything from nature-based solutions to just transition? How do we think about those issues? So it's interesting to think about the role that the philanthropic sector plays in our society as a whole and the role that philanthropic capital plays over time. I actually think that this ties back to a broader discussion of the social contract for which philanthropy exists in the first place, and among other things, enjoys a beneficial tax status. I see philanthropic capital as playing an important role as risk capital for our society, kind of being able to be, in some senses, a petri dish for testing out the social, environmental, sustainability, and equity issues that often can then scale into other sectors and parts of society. So you've seen in some of the commitments that came out of the General Assembly Week, Climate Week, and COP26, you've seen some significant commitments from philanthropic capital to step forward and kind of fund some of those parts of this climate transition spectrum that are currently difficult to fund with other types of capital. And they're related exactly, as you say, to innovation of different kinds, as well as with focus on a just transition. So that intersection of social and environmental innovation 
if that's exactly where I think we should be. And so when I talk about blended capital structures, I think it's also interesting when you look at that first loss piece of a blended finance structure to think about how does philanthropic capital play differently than public sector capital in the risk tranche? And then how does that come together again with the private capital at the end of the day? And how do we each find our unique voice and unique role to play in working together to achieve our shared goals? Nilly, from your perspective, how far along is this discussion in the investment committees of philanthropies today? Where are we in terms of maturity and seeing philanthropy as this de-risker, as this catalyzer, as this pioneer fund to help us do some of this solutioning? Are most investment committees now in philanthropy, do you think, where they need to be on this? To me, it feels like the progress is in the conversations are still being made much more on the grant making side or what we call the program side of the house than at the investment committee tables. And it's interesting when you look, for example, across the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, many foundations are asset owners in some sense. And yet there are very few foundations or endowments that have made net zero pledges. And so when you look at all of the capital that a philanthropic institution has, and you talk about the program side of the house versus the investment side of the house, the thing is, for example, in an American philanthropy, the program is 5% of what we do each year with our capital, and the invested capital is the other 95%. So when we made our net zero commitment from the David Rockefeller Fund and two other family institutions, the Sinergos Institute, which I mentioned earlier, and the Stone Barns Center for Sustainable Agriculture, both made the same pledge at the same time. What we talked about is what we call the whole 100%. How are we leveraging all of our capital And all of our resources extending even beyond our financial capital to all of the levers that we have to try to move the needle in society behind our mission. How are we applying all of those to achieve our goals? And in this case, primarily the climate goal and the net zero goal. When you look at it that way, you say it's not enough to just do grant making focused on climate change. If the other 95% of your assets are sitting lazy or possibly working counter to the goals that you may have with how you're operating the program side. And so I would say that it's wonderful to see that philanthropy is stepping forward, that it's advancing and taking risk, that it's supporting our society as a whole in trying new things that, you know, otherwise we may not be able to finance those corners where capital might not otherwise trickle. It's great to see, but let's get focused on this whole hundred percent and really understand how all of our resources are contributing to, or possibly detracting in some cases from what we want to see in the world. Bravo on that. I think you're spot on with that encouragement to folks. Nelly, one of the 
things, if I sort of think from the company side, that is the challenge is my journey in sustainability as a company requires that we also have sustainable ecosystems. Company sustainability takes ecosystem sustainability. And so I can run into limits about how far I can get with, say, recycling activity when there's no recycling infrastructure in place. Or I can have all these ambitions as a company, but then I'm limited by the way my industry has historically worked or the policies and regulations that have historically governed some aspect or even the investment approach that has been taken to certain forms of public infrastructure may limit my journey to sustainability, my journey to net zero. And so, you know, we've been exploring this idea, shaping the ecosystem and the role that sort of business diplomacy plays as a critical capability to proactively engage to change those ecosystems so they support sustainability and they support businesses toward being able to cultivate advantage in sustainability. How do you think about that challenge? You mentioned philanthropy as one way to begin to stimulate some change and be able to have an influence over historical structures and the innovation necessary. But how do we think about either the role of the company and the role of capital in shaping the ecosystem so that companies can make progress in sustainability. I love that you asked about this topic of business diplomacy because it's something that I've thought a lot about in my own personal leadership. David Rockefeller himself is a role model for me in this. He was a significant businessman in his leadership of Chase over many years but also obviously an extremely significant philanthropist and very active in partnership with folks like Henry Kissinger and in his long-term leadership of the Council on Foreign Relations in truly being a non-state diplomat for the United States at a time when sometimes it might even be easier for a business person or a non-state actor to open certain doors or have certain conversations than the government itself. And I've also been mentored by folks like Bob Hormatz at Goldman Sachs and Bill Rhodes, who played a similar role at City, who would travel around the world and open doors for their companies interacting with governments really as international business ambassadors. And in that work, by the way, often they were opening countries where the U.S. was first building its presence, right? Working in the global South, working with governments to create new types of relationships. And so I love the fact that you asked about business diplomacy because this is something that I've thought a lot about. Sitting in the U.S., we face an environment of political uncertainty. You asked about questions around tenure for CEOs. We face questions also around tenure for our government over time because our politic, our voting base is relatively equally divided. We can debate about voter rights and things like that, but at the end of the day, the balance of power in D.C. sits on a tight fulcrum. And so I also think about the role today that private sector leadership can have in providing more of a steady, continuous hand in some ways 
you know, when I look at D.C. and wonder what's going to happen in the midterm elections and what's going to happen when we have our next federal elections, I feel that business diplomacy, as I was saying before, not just one sector, but the role that all three sectors will play in working together, the private sector, public sector and civil society to offer a more steady hand of combined leadership going forward because what we need is pretty steady, focused leadership for the next 30 years to achieve net zero and beyond. But at the end of the day, you rightly asked about the role of competitive advantage in all of this. And it's important from businesses' perspective to find ways to do this that continue to support our duty to shareholders, our duty to all stakeholders at the same time and the bottom line. And the good news is that there's a lot of opportunity to do this. I talked about risk management on the downside from the climate problem, and that's real. But also we find consumers voting with their feet. We are sitting in a very tight labor market and we find employees voting with their feet. And so in order to be able to compete across all of the stakeholder bases that companies face, it becomes more important to demonstrate leadership and sustainability mission and long-term vision just to be able to deliver on the business imperative. And so this makes the idea of business diplomacy for sustainability even more important just from a pure, hardcore corporate case. We have to play the long game here, right? And when you see sort of the challenges, whether those are political or policy that aren't on those longer term horizons, it does put a lot more uncertainty in my ability to have confidence in making this investment, making this business model change, making this new approach to the market work. Nilly, what's next? If we sort of thought about the frontier for investors and philanthropists using their capital to help us get toward a sustainable future, what's next? What conversations still need to happen or what goals still need to be set? I think about the long term, but I'm also thinking a whole lot about 2022. We're sitting now in December 2021. So it's amazing the work that we've done on the broad macroeconomic case and frameworks that will need to achieve our sustainability goals on climate. We need to become and continue to be more articulate about how that intersects with our goals on society. And at the end of the day, to acknowledge that we can't separate our environmental goals from our social goals. So we need to do continue to do a lot of work, not just on thinking or talking about topics like environmental justice or climate justice, but implementation. Like, how do you do this in a demonstrated way in the world? 
And then also, as we move from these kind of broad macro frameworks around net zero and climate goals, and as I said, the way the timelines go, folks are making their pledges and they're setting their targets and they're organizing their boards and organizations. You know, we'd need to get into action on the ground. This climate change is a problem of tons of carbon. We need to aggressively accelerate our reductions um, in the amount of emissions that we're putting into the world. And at the end of the day, we're also going to figure out how to remove a significant amount of carbon from the atmosphere. And this will require continued innovation and scaling. We will continue to plan, but we need to push into aggressive action And I think we also need to show the public, to show the world what we mean, visible leadership. When we sit and talk about things like net zero, it makes people nervous. They wonder, have we really got this? Are we really going to do this? And so it's, I think, the best way to be accountable is to be in action. Millie, thank you again for being with us on building competitive advantage in a sustainable world and sharing the perspective of investors and philanthropists and how we accelerate this journey to sustainability. We so appreciate hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed today's conversation and would like to be notified on your mobile phone when new episodes are available, please click the subscribe button to subscribe to the series on the LabCast app.